Every week, journalists at the University of Florida's College of Journalism and Communications report important stories for the people of North Central Florida and beyond. Do you see Hurricane Irma as sort of a turning point in prioritizing nursing homes, or do you feel that nursing home care still might not be a priority? When it comes to debris pickup, what are some other ways that the city prepares for potential storms? One of the more recent legislations passed for hurricane preparedness was a tax holiday to help Floridians purchase things that will help them prepare uh, in the case of a major storm. Have you seen that be successful for um, Alachua County residents? This is The Rewind from WUFT News. I'm your host today, Julia Cooper. I'll take you through the strongest reporting coming out of the college and a discussion with the people most familiar with these stories. The first week in September marks five years since Hurricane Irma hit Florida. The tropical cyclone first hit the state's southwestern shore and traveled up the peninsula, leaving us with the most expensive year of weather events ever recorded. According to the CDC, Irma caused the deaths of 123 people. The hurricane also displaced roughly a third of all Florida residents and visitors. This week, the Rewind team is following up on WUFT-reported stories that significantly impacted North Central Florida. These include power outages at nursing homes, difficulties with post-hurricane debris removal, and how the storm shaped state legislation. Reporter Jacob Sedesi speaks with Florida Public Radio Emergency Network reporter Melissa Fato, who walks us through what's changed when it comes to hurricane preparedness. Here's Melissa. What was interesting about this storm was that it impacted such a large amount of the state. You know, usually we're used to a hurricane making one, maybe two landfalls in a state. And so it impacts just a handful of counties or maybe just one geographic area. Hurricane Irma's track was up the inland of the peninsula. So it impacted a much larger amount of people than typically are impacted in a hurricane situation. What did the preparation efforts for Irma look like? Something that was definitely a challenge when it came to Irma was that A, all these different agencies and counties had to collaborate, right? Because you just had so many places being affected. And then another thing that was new that year was that 2017 was actually the first year that the National Weather Service was offering storm surge warnings. So we're pretty familiar with being under hurricane watch or hurricane warning. This is a warning or a watch that has to do with storm surge. And that's when the water rises during a hurricane. So they didn't introduce the storm surge warnings because of Irma, but it just happened to be the same year that they introduced this for the first time. So it kind of was like a testing ground for these storm surge warnings. And although Moyeda says that there hasn't been a direct correlation made yet between storm surge warnings being incredibly effective, he says there has been in the last five years a decreasing amount of storm surge deaths, which is the number one killer during hurricanes. It's not necessarily the high wind speeds. It's people getting caught in this really powerful surge of water. So he says in the past five years, there has been a decreased amount of deaths from storm surge. And although it's too early to correlate that specifically to the introduction of storm surge warnings, Hurricane Irma was the first time that they were able to use that tool with the public. And he said it was a really impactful tool and really important one. You know, I asked him five years later after Irma, do you think Florida's in a better place? And he just said, I don't think there's a better state in terms of how to approach hurricanes you know, we are the best equipped state in the country. Now, what did the recovery process look like? 
Kevin Guthrie, who I spoke to, who is the director of FDEM, he spoke a little more to the recovery process. So first of all, Irma was an incredibly expensive storm. It's estimated that the monetary impact of Irma is something around $50 billion. And the year that Irma hit was actually the most expensive year of weather events ever. So across 16 events, not just Irma, it was about $300 billion in damages. And this is across the country, not just in Florida. So when it came to recovery, it was tough because there was a record number of evacuations. I think that's another sort of classic thing that we remember from Irma was it was 6.8 million estimated people were on the move evacuating from Irma. And that displaced a lot of people, essentially. And what the division estimates is about three to four million of those people did not have to evacuate. Now, I asked him, well, what's the downside of that? You know, if somebody wants to evacuate, what's the, you know, what's the problem with that, right? And here's the thing. If you live in an evacuation zone, which you can actually look up on the Division of Emergency Management, you can look at what zone that you live you live in. If you're in an evacuation zone and you receive an evacuation order, then yes, you have to evacuate. It is in your best interest of your health and safety to evacuate. But a lot of people will evacuate anyway, even if they don't live in an evacuation zone, even if they don't get an evacuation order because that's their personal decision. But he urges people to rethink that because with such an over evacuation of people, it actually caused a lot of delays in the recovery process because it clogs up basically all the roads, right? I mean, there's a lot of traffic on the interstate coming in and out of cities. And then he basically said, if you evacuated and your house is still standing and you still have electricity, you're probably going to want to get home as soon as possible. So if you're trying to return to your home a day or two after the event, the chances are that there was damage somewhere along the lines of point A and B. So you're going to have recovery crews in the area, you know, picking up debris or putting up power lines, whatever. And with you basically coming back through those roads, people having to move their trucks, things like that, you're basically part of slowing down that recovery process. That was FPREN reporter Melissa Fato speaking with Jacob Sedesi about Hurricane Irma's impact over the years. In September 2017, 12 elderly people died in the care of a Hollywood Hills nursing home after a power outage knocked out the facility's air conditioning. Four staff members were charged with multiple counts of aggravated manslaughter and the state revoked the home's license. Five years after Irma, producer Jack Prater speaks with Kristen Knapp, a spokesperson for the Florida Healthcare Association, about what's changed to make sure Florida's nursing homes are prepared for the next powerful storm. Before we get into legislation that's changed in the last five years, could you touch on the tragedy at the Rehabilitation Center at Hollywood Hills, where 12 people died during Hurricane Irma? Well, obviously, you know, that was a tragedy and our hearts went out to, you know, the families that were impacted, the residents who lost their lives, the, the staff who were impacted by that tragedy. You know, I think it's important to note that Florida's nursing homes have made, you know, and do make, and the members of Florida Healthcare Association are put their resident safety first. And this was an isolated incident that occurred. You know, the majority of nursing homes are focused on the safety of their residents. Emergency preparedness is something that we work on year round. 
not just during a hurricane, you know, we're doing preparedness activities, planning activities, and then obviously all of that leads to helping to ensure that you are putting your resident safety and your staff safety first in the middle of a storm. Irma was very challenging for the long-term care community across Florida because um, it shifted so much. The path of the storm shifted so much. There were so many areas of the states that had the potential for impact and then, you know, actually saw the impact prior to Irma, really, I think there was a lack of understanding the complexity of the care that we provide to the residents in our buildings. And so when there was a power outage, we were not always prioritized by the utility companies at that time. You know, a lot of them, if you saw the news articles, they, you know, equated us in the priority level to doctor's offices. And that's simply not the case. We provide 24-hour care to very fragile seniors, many who rely on oxygen or other medical equipment that requires power. Now, facilities, the nursing homes are required to have emergency backup power. Prior to Irma, we're required to have emergency backup power for their medical systems, but for electricity, for utility purposes, that was not a requirement. Now, Governor Scott, obviously, and as a result of the tragedy that occurred, implemented what was known as the generator rule. And that was something we worked very closely with our members, worked very closely with the state to collaborate to ensure that we were able to implement those generators into the facility safely so that it wasn't a rushed experience to make sure they were built safely to provide the necessary cooling means for our facilities. So do you see Hurricane Irma as sort of a turning point in prioritizing nursing homes? Or do you feel that nursing home care still might not be a priority you know, we've done a lot of work with our state partners, with our utility partners since Irma. Um, you know, prior to that, obviously, that was something we always focused on. Um, but Irma, I think, elevated our status among the utility companies. We have good relationships with those folks, but now they see us as a partner and understand that when the power goes out, even if it's during just a regular storm, the nursing homes need to be prioritized to get that power back on. Now, generators have certainly made an impact that you've got that emergency backup power. All of our nursing homes are in compliance, have their generators in place at this time. So that does help when you've got, and when I say generators, I think a lot of times people think of what you can get at your local hardware store, your home depot. Um, we're talking about a facility that is home to 120 residents plus the staff. They're, they're large size generators that are construction projects. These are not something that you plug in to your outlet to cool your building to 81 degrees. So, so these were significant construction projects that were taking place. Local communities have different ordinances um, when it comes to building. So there was a lot that went into that. But yes, I would definitely say that the relationships have been strengthened with our utility companies. And we continue to strengthen our relationship with all of the state partners that are involved from our state agency for healthcare administration, Department of Health, the local emergency management, as well as the state emergency management. You know, all, all emergencies are local. So that's always the first step for our facilities when there is a situation. Reach out to your emergency manager at the county, work with your local utilities to make sure that you're staying in constant communication to determine the, you know, what the scenario is going to be for your facility, whether that's sheltering in place or evacuating, depending on, you know, what the impact of the storm. This past session, the um, legislature implemented a funding increase for our providers. And, you know, that certainly helps with covering the cost of care. It was a significant funding increase that the legislature passed as well as the governor supported. 
but that really, you know, in terms of emergencies, I mean, that that funding was needed, not, you know, you're talking hurricanes five years ago, but COVID presented some significant funding challenges for our facilities from a workforce crisis to the cost of personal protective equipment, testing for COVID, infection control protocols and supplies. So, you know, that was a significant funding challenge for our facilities and, and that increase that was passed this past session really will help. Um, we're still not quite there, but it's helping to make a, an impact to help us. You know, we need to be competitive as employers to have the right staff caring for our residents and enough staff caring for our residents to make sure that they're paid an adequate wage. So that funding increase will help with that as well. With staffing being an issue in many industries, notably the healthcare industry, is staffing going to be a problem this hurricane season for nursing homes? So for nursing homes, we uh, have a minimum staffing requirements. So we have to have a certain number of staff dependent on the number of um, residents that the facility cares for. You know, so what I mentioned earlier is, you know, emergency preparedness really is year round for our facilities. But, you know, I will say that that's one of the things that we found um, during Hurricane Michael, the generators being in place at our facilities here up in the Panhandle where I'm located, that storm had a significant impact on the Panama City and Panhandle area. But those generators kept the facilities cool. Many of the caregivers who lost power or you know their homes were destroyed or impacted significantly by Michael were able to shelter in place. The, the facility really became a place that they could bring their loved ones while they were having you know their homes repaired. They were in the facility working, caring for the residents, but the children were also there and able to stay cool because Michael was, you know, it's hot up here still during that time of year. So um, those generators played a huge role um, as well. That was producer Jack Prater speaking with Florida Healthcare Association spokesperson Kristen Knapp on nursing homes emergency plans. Frustrated by the pace of debris removal after the storm, Governor Rick Scott told counties to submit detailed debris pickup plans. Responses across the counties varied, from emails outlining rough estimates for the end of the process to IRMA-specific plans detailing county actions and timelines. At the time, removal was slowed by a limited number of hauler trucks due to the U.S. and its territories being battered by several back-to-back -back storms. Producer Nathaniel Wilson speaks with City of Gainesville Emergency Manager Sean Withers about the process of debris removal during severe storms and how emergency response agencies prepare today. Can you start by giving us a brief overview of the city's plan in case of a storm emergency? The, the city has uh, like an all-hazard plan. Uh, that describes some of the fundamental policies and strategies that we have when we have a storm that comes into uh, the, the area. Um, so ultimately, you know, we set up the, our EOC, and, uh, which is for the city, and we determine you know, priorities throughout the city that need to be worked on. Traditionally, it's um, cut and push teams, um, electrical, and kind of prioritize through us and through Alachua County Emergency Management uh, to get everybody's um, power and, and, and clear roads cleared as quickly as possible, especially because we'll want to get the uh, emergency vehicles to be able to get to those residents. If there's like a one way in and one way out of a neighborhood, those are priorities. And following Hurricane Irma, what kind of response team were you a part of? So during the Irma response, um, I would have been in uh, on one of the units that's on the road. Uh, so we have fire trucks and ladder ladder companies, and um, so those are the and squads. So depending on you know where I was at that particular time, 
let's see, um, I was probably at Quinn 8 um, up there off uh, 34th Avenue. Are the cut and push teams the ones responsible for clearing the roads following a storm? Correct. And who handles the cut and push teams? So there's kind of a combination, you know, we do have strike teams that come out, which are ones that kind of move a little bit slower, but they try to uh, prioritize our main corridors um, because we also have, of course, Shands and North Florida hospitals. So people coming in from the from the north or from the east, you know, they got to make sure those roadways are clear to get them to be able to get to the hospitals. Public Works, GPD, GFR, we all kind of work together in those strike teams, and then individually, you know, if there's smaller things that are out there. All the fire trucks have chainsaws on them. A lot of the police cars will probably have a chainsaw on them. So, but anything that's any type of like primary hazard, you know, the, the bigger cut push team is going to come out to it. Anything that's under tension. If it's a limb that's like completely broken off, just sitting there, they'll try to get it out of the way. So when it comes to debris pickup, what are some other ways that the city prepares for potential storms? Well, you know, the, the city and GRU on a regular basis, um, you know, they go around, especially around the power lines and power areas and um, identify trees that are kind of a threat. And sometimes they'll be able to take them out, depending on if they're on private property and, and so forth. But if it's, you know, obviously the deteriorated tree and we have know we have storage, storms coming because we're a pretty heavily treed city. You know, there was a, another storm that we had back in, I want to say it was 2005 that came through and uh, we were, the city was really wet. We had a lot of rain uh, just kind of poured down on us and we had lots and lots of trees down all over the city. So, you know, the plan is, is that, you know, we'll do a windshield view when the first responders are still are going out, like we'll be able to identify and start communicating like all those locations. And they don't always, every unit doesn't always have a chainsaw on it. The ladder companies do because they do truck company operations, but, um, during the storm preparations, um, all that stuff gets fueled up, gets gassed up, gets checked, new chainsaw blades, all the, you know, chainsaw chains, and, um, you know, they, they get extra ones to make sure that we're prepared for that. So usually uh, at the beginning of the season is when, before all that happens, we usually have a, a, a regular meeting within the departments and within the city that all the coordination team comes together and we identify any, like, uh, special needs for that particular year. Are there specific things that can be done when you know that a big storm is coming? So we start identifying that and I'll start tracking that fairly early and notifying everyone that's within the city departments on those coordination teams and the city manager. So once that is identified that that's going to hit here, like all of the different departments go into their emergency operations plans and make sure that they have you know, everything in place. So every department between Parks and Rec and Public Works and GPD sustainability, they all have emergency operation plans on what they need to do to prepare. Once that go time goes, it's it's here within like 48 hours out, you know, everything should be in place at that point. You know, at the five-day plan, they're starting to work on those type of things, but at 48 hours out, everything should be in place um, and we should be, and we'll be getting ready to, to hunker down or have people coming in or they're staying at home. And how often are these emergency plans updated? So they're reviewed pretty much on an annual basis and done some type of update if there's some type of update. You know, we follow the, we adopted the NIMS, the National um, Incident Management System for the city. So that's the kind of what we follow. And um, so anytime there's some changes, if they add 
maybe ESFs, which are emergency support functions. Like we made, or there were 15, I think there's 17 now. So we just try to mirror that national response framework because that's a standard. So when you go from city to city or county to county, we're talking the same language. How does this affect the way that you train? Well, we do um, regular meetings from each one of the groups. Um, so we have like planning, we have operations, we have incident command, we have finance, we have logistics, we have PIOs. Um, so each one of those has uh, meetings that we do every about every two months. We'll try to put together some type of a training and we'll update them on, on new things or just re review the stuff that we have. Uh, to make sure that everyone's in line because people change and there's always, you know, fluctuation and and personnel. So uh, it's constantly, you know, it's constant battle of updating. And how are things different from storm to storm? The EOPs that we have, they're they're flexible, so they can be implemented to the extent that they're needed. So if the threat is large, then we can do a full complement of everything. But if it's a smaller event, then we may only activate one or two of the system's components. So there's not a, a complete, uh, we don't devastate all the uh, different departments with their, with their people. That was producer Nathaniel Wilson speaking with City of Gainesville Emergency Manager Sean Withers on debris removal in the city. After Hurricane Irma devastated Florida in 2017, state legislators worked to mend the gaps in Florida's infrastructure and hurricane preparedness. With massive federal grants, increased oversight for emergency office, and tax breaks for hurricane supplies, much is different about hurricane preparedness at the local level. Producer Ezra Sheffield sits down with Alachua County's Assistant Director of Emergency Management, David Peaton. Peaton was serving in Levy County in the same position when Irma made landfall. He says Irma taught them about the troubles of big storms that aren't just wind damage and flooding. It was really important to show how local governments, especially ones farther north, north central Florida, make sure that they take into account things like the evacuations from South Florida and how people may react to those types of evacuations. We saw an unprecedented amount of issues coming from South Florida for people evacuating coming north, which put a big strain on our local population um, all through north central Florida. The other big lessons that we learned is to understand that the public needs to see that just because a storm is only a Category 1 or maybe not even a, uh, an actual hurricane, just a strong tropical storm, those impacts can be significant. So it's important for us not to focus on things like categories of storms, but focus on what the local impacts are going to be. There's always that big joke you see people all over Florida say, oh, if it's not a Category 3, I'm not putting my beer down. You know, that's just not the way the real world works. Irma was not even a Category 1 when it came over Alachua County, and people in Alachua County and Levy County and Marion County, some people were out of power for weeks after that. So it's important for us to look at what are the local impacts, not what's the actual category of the storm. After the storm, one of the big criticisms of Rick Scott's response was how he handled um, debris pickup. How have debris pickup efforts or plans improved since then? The state of Florida has taken the lessons that they've learned for debris pickup very seriously. Uh, Alachua County, just like almost all counties in the state of Florida, pre-bid out our disaster debris pickup with companies ahead of time so that when disaster does hit, we're not having to go out there and look for companies to do these debris pickup. Of course, the issue that happened in Hurricane Irma was a lot of those contractors throughout the entire state 
were not necessarily fulfilling their responsibilities on those contracts that were put in place. Alacho County is a little bit in a better position than a lot of other counties as we do have a very robust public works department that's able to fill in a lot of those gaps. So we weren't in quite as bad of a situation as many other counties were. But we do tr we trust our debris contractors. We vet them very well, and um, we uh, hope that the issue like that won't happen again. Um, another big thing out of Irma was the safety of senior citizens, especially in retirement homes. I know that Congress passed some legislation that put pressure on the retirement homes themselves to have robust pl plans in place for evacuation and backup power. How does the county emergency office kind of work with them on that? So the state, uh, after Hurricane Irma, put in place requirements for specific care facilities to have at least the ability to provide climate control for their residents in the event of something like a Hurricane Irma happening again. So one of the ways that we make sure that that is put into place is our office in emergency management reviews the comprehensive emergency management plans for the uh, adult care facilities, group homes, places like that. We review those CEMPs every year. They're, they're reviewed every single year. We have a staff member here that does it. And they ensure that their plans show that they're in compliance with those new laws of being able to provide the climate control for the residents, having evacuation plans, having plans on what to do if their facility is unlivable. The federal government gave Florida around $6 billion to help reinforce the storm infrastructure across the state. I'm just curious how Alachua County utilized that money. Uh, here in Alachua County, it's been very effective. We always try to look for other options for storm shelters other than our schools, just because one of the best things we could do for our, our residents and our, and our community is to get these schools back open. Uh, as soon as possible after a storm. And as you probably know, in the past, it's mostly schools that act as storm shelters. But with that money, um, county has been able to identify retrofit projects to make non-school facilities the ability to be a shelter. So, for example, the Gainesville Senior Center acts as our primary uh, special needs shelter, and that is a non-school facility that we've able to be able to, to house people in. We are currently working on a facility over uh, on the other side of the county, um, the Freedom Center, to be able to be a hurricane shelter, uh, the MLK Center, you know, all, all these areas that we've been able to retro, what we call retrofit, which is ability to make them be used as a hurricane facility or a shelter facility that's not inside the school. So I think that that's really helped a lot. With the size of the population, you know, schools will always have to be play a role in sheltering. Um, but the quicker we can get those closed, the better, because we really need to get those schools open. And I think that that money that the state gave out really helped a lot of communities prepare for that. One of the more recent um, legislations passed for hurricane preparedness was a tax holiday to help Floridians purchase things that will help them prepare uh, in the case of a major storm. Have you seen that be successful for um, Alachua County residents? I think the tax holiday is a great way for people that are on the fence, whether or not they want to purchase some of these items, give them a good reason to go ahead and get out there and get these items purchased. You know, 
you figure that that's essentially a 7% discount, you know, on on these items by uh, making them exempt from tax. So some of your larger items, for example, people that are financially able to say purchase a generator, that's that can be a fairly significant amount of savings. So I think that that's a great way to one, save some people money, but I think that even more important than that, than the actual saving the money is the fact that it gives the ability for people to really see hurricane preparedness as a priority in the state of Florida. And not just hurricane preparedness, you know, we focus a little bit too much sometimes on hurricanes, but all disasters, all incidents. However, with that, you know, hurricane per, hurricane and disaster preparedness is is something that for some people, even a tax holiday is just very difficult for them to be able to afford. So that's why I really think it's important for local governments to talk to people about what services are available to them before, during, and after a storm for people that can't afford to, even with the tax holiday, to buy a generator or to have that seven-day supply of food and water readily available. We see one of the big things we learned after Irma about people running out of gas. You know, so the state's big on telling people, you know, keep your gas tank half full during hurricane season. And that's great advice. That's great, great advice. But let's be honest, a lot of people can't afford to do that. So the tax holiday is great. It's a great way to bring up awareness for disaster preparedness, but the local governments need to also make sure that they're reaching out to their community to tell them what some of the the free or very low cost options are available to them. That was producer Ezra Sheffield speaking with Alachua County Emergency Management Director David Peaton on legislative changes and lessons learned after Irma. That's all for this episode. For more on each story, make sure to check out wuft.org. The Rewind from WUFT News is produced by Matthew Bell, Julia Cooper, Jack Prater, Ezra Sheffield, and Nathaniel Wilson. Our executive producer is Ryan Vasquez. WUFT News is operated out of the College of Journalism and Communications at the University of Florida. Remember to follow us at WUFT News on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest stories. Thank you for listening to our first episode of the semester. I'm Julia Cooper. See you next week.